there is so much resource out there for us to be continually learning every day. But the danger is we, we spend the time with people like us, you know, people at our level with our thinking. And we're sitting in this echo chamber where we just get reverberated back to us, our view of the world. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimising business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors and examples from some of my work over the last few years coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today, I'm learning from Nick Cramp. Nick has been in the past an e-myth coach, so fantastic book, looking at how to build process in your business. And now he's written his own book, Better Before Bigger, Rethinking Business Success and How to Get Out of the Success Trap. So, what we're talking about today or what we're learning about from Nick today are some guiding principles to help you rethink your business and how to define what success looks like. Business owners, leaders even, get to the point often where they just there are no more hours in the day. They can't work any harder. And that's where you've been caught in the success trap. So how do you get out of that? How do you build teams of people? How do you build companies that can function with less of you so that you can enjoy the success that you've built. What internal resources do you need? What resistance will you find within the organization? What principles will guide you on this journey? So fantastic conversation with Nick. I really enjoyed his book. Great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. So hi, I'm Nick Cramp. I'm a business coach and a recently first-time published author. I live in the Mendips and I work with businesses across all sectors, but my specialism is adolescent stage businesses. This is businesses that have been around for a while, are successful, but you've sometimes got to the maximum capacity of your current structure. And I've developed a program to help you overcome that. And so those those businesses, I think I think it was last year we pulled the data from Companies House and did some analysis and I think the businesses you're talking about, the 96% of UK businesses that don't get over the valley of death that gets them on to sort of 10 million, you know, 10 to 12, an entrepreneur and 10 to 12 employees, or, or maybe two, or maybe two founders and they've got to two and a half million and they've got 25 staff, but it's that they've gone up a bit and back a bit and up a bit and back a bit maybe. And we've coached a number of firms like that you know, in the most extreme example, we sat down with the CEO and he just burst into tears and he said, I feel like a complete failure. You know, I, I said, I, you know, the business grew really, really quickly. And then we've just been stuck on a plateau for three years and it feels like Groundhog Day. Help me love this business or sell it or give it away, you know, because frankly, he just got to the point where he was just trapped. What do you call it? The success trap? The success trap. And, it, and I've been there myself as a business owner. I spent the first 15 years running businesses and we had this paradoxical situation where we were successful in terms of increasing revenue, increasing members and customers and things like that. But I wasn't able to scale the business beyond that level because I didn't understand that, you know, what got me here is not going to get me there. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because when people say entrepreneur or startup, immediately people think of, I don't know, Facebook or, you know, some 20-year-old San Francisco person. But actually in the UK, I think it's much older than that and has 12 years probably on average of industry experience. So in a company doing a thing and then they come out of a business to do a thing and then they try to build a team to do some of the delivery, you know, deliver some of the knowledge. 
And is that, was that your experience? Were you, with the business that you had, had you been doing it, something like that for somebody else before you? Yeah, I'd done a degree in sports. So obviously I bought a health club. You uh-huh. know, makes of course sense, you did. Of course it? you did, yeah. Nothing about business. I did an MBA, but I didn't really understand what my role was as the leader. I spent most of my day as a technician and I spent most of my day on other people's problems and other people's agenda. Because you were the smartest person in the room. Well, obviously I was the smartest <laughs> person in the room. And that was, as you know, that's the fallacy, isn't it? And that's what's needed to get things running. You need the leader at the front of the business confidently striding ahead. But at a certain point, the leader needs to drop back to allow others to take on the accountability and to learn leadership. Because what stops a business from scaling is the leadership capability across the organization. And if that's on one person's shoulders, it's obviously going to be limited. And the sooner you can get that leadership team in place, and the sooner you can step back and allow others to do some of the decision making, then the easier it is to see the other opportunities and to build the next version of the business in your head so that you can then start working on that. And that's what I never did. There's often a big gap, isn't there? There's the entrepreneur and then, you know, there's sort of 10 to 12 people. But in in terms of seniority, experience, there's no leadership team. No. And, and the people around the leader actually know less than the leader still on the various areas. And the hardest hire, I think, is that first hire when you bring a specialist in that knows more than you as the leader. So when you bring a finance person in that really is a finance person, and and that's where leaders need to get to is being the least knowledgeable person in a room. And if they've got that situation where they're going to a room or going to a meeting, not knowing all of the answers, then they're in the right meeting because they're going to be challenged as a leader and they're going to have new ideas put to them. And so do you, is, is finance normally the, the first specialist that you think people should hire? Or I think finance is one of the first. I think from the, the business side, actually the operational side is where it starts to fray first. And I right. think that the operational aspect, when we're small, our customer service is great. Our response time is really good. But as we scale unless we scale the systems and processes and people in the middle of the business, I think that starts to fray first. That obviously then impacts the finances. But I think having a really strong operational customer service delivery person in the center of the business, I think that's the key hired on. What's the trap that people fall into there? Not hiring somebody who's good enough, worrying about that there's a cost attached to that? Yeah, I think on the way up where we're scaling our business, we shop hungry. So by shop hungry, I mean, we take on customers, we take on employees and we take on suppliers that aren't an ideal fit. Uh We take them on because we feel that improving our revenue and our turnover is what we're all about. And we don't think too far ahead about what we really need two years down the line. So we're taking somebody on to solve an existing situation, whereas what we should be doing is taking someone on who's got the ability to grow three, five years with the company and bring a skill set in. So we basically shop too cheaply, I think, and we need to hire above the level that we currently need. So as the organization grows, you've got people around you that are comfortable at that next level. Yeah, and often people are stuck in that cash execution cycle aren't they they've they've taken on a bit they've taken on a bit of revenue yeah that they shouldn't really have said yes to yeah not enough margin feel they can't put the price up yeah and they're stuck in this trap because what they've got to do as well as they move forward is jettison some of their customers maybe that are no longer ideal customers yeah or or even have a definition of what the ideal customer is Well, even have that, as you say, because naturally when we're growing, a customer's a customer, great. (laughs) You know, we're not too selective generally. And I think having the ability and when you get success to really use that period to create that next version of the company, I think that's what's key. How do you help people? This is something that, you know, people are busy, right? You know, because as you say, they're caught in this trap, you know, they've... I remember speaking to an entrepreneur and he had just 
he was now working seven days a week, 14 hours a day, right? So he had literally run out of time to work on his business any more than he was already doing. You know, he couldn't delegate because delegation takes longer. You know, you say, well, by the time I've explained it to somebody, I may as well have done it myself. And that's true, but you're missing the point. That way you'll be doing it forever yourself. And he just ran out of time. And he, you know, just, yeah. thankfully, we're able to get him to the point where he went and hired some great people. People often just get stuck there, don't they? They do. And I think the the main advice I give people is that they've got to embrace this plateau. You talked about a plateau before that sometimes starts to occur. And I think that it's like the off-season for sporting teams. The plateau period is when you can get better. Yeah. When you can improve your fitness, you can improve your organisational fitness. You can bring in new players like a team brings in new team members. You can look at your tactics. So for a lot of businesses, they run 24-7, 12 months a year, and it's a continual cycle. And they don't create the time, the plateau periods, where they can just stand back and really review stuff and really plan stuff. So I think that it's building in those plateau periods, whether that's half a day a month out of the business in a mastermind group or with a coach or you know just being challenged differently, or whether that's longer, it depends on the business. But I think the first thing is to recognize that you need to become a learner again need to understand what those businesses that have scaled to 10 million, what did they do? You know, there is so much resource out there for us to be continually learning every day. But the danger is we we spend the time with people like us, you know, people at our level with our thinking. And we're sitting in this echo chamber where we just get reverberated back to us, our view of the world. Oh uh, so, yeah, that that you are that you are the person you spend yeah. most of your time with. And if we spend time with our five key reports, they're going to think like us because we've told them to think like that. We've taught them to think like that. That's the organisational think. Yeah. So what they must do, I think, is challenge that in a really big way. I think at this stage, it's about business transformation rather than business tinkering. It, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you you know, as you hire that sort of, I don't know what you would head of operations for argument's sake, you know, it's, you're like refounding the business, aren't you? It's like a sort of, it's like a co-founder for the next phase, but that person's expensive. And so often I see what happens is you, people, you know, when I speak to people, they've sort of, they've done the hokey cokey a few times, right? You know, they've, they've hired somebody and they got it wrong and they hired somebody and they got it wrong and they hired somebody and they got it wrong. And so now they've got it right, but they've done the same in operations and sales a few times. But every time they, they do it, of course, the profitability goes down. I think that's the drug they've got to wean themselves off. At a certain stage, then the profitability might flatline. But if you're investing in that phase on the right person to give you, the leader, the owner, the freedom in the future you know, is that not a trade-off worth doing? And it depends on the level of frustration, Dominic, and I think it depends on the level of self-awareness. And I come across a lot of business owners that are trapped by the business they've created, and they're not actually enjoying it. They've got a successful business if you look at traditional metrics. You know, everyone outside them goes, well done, the great business, really lo- love what you do. But they don't. They've fallen out of love with the business because they've become consumed by the business. And the only way out of that is a decent level of transformation rather than just a little bit of reallocation of my role. Because they've lost that curiosity that they had when they started the business. And I think curiosity is the key to this. We need to get the business owners back to being curious about what they don't know yet. Uh-huh. Runsfeld's known unknowns and unknown unknowns. They need to spend time on those issues rather than on the known knowns. Because at the most of the time, their diary at the moment is full of stuff they already know. They're just reinforcing to other people. Yeah, we do. Uh, often we talk to clients about color coding their diary. And we sort of say, okay, blue stuff, that's, that's revenue. And red stuff, that's admin black stuff that strategy yeah how how much strategies in your diary every week yeah i I think that's the key and there's none (laughs) and i think the other key dom is 
finding a space which they can do strategy, which is not their normal office. Yeah, I think you're right. We, you know, we've had a lot of clients who've come through Vistage and, yeah. you know, other sort of mastermind groups uh, where, you know, they realize then that the problems that they have are very similar to other people's problems. Oh, isn't that so good when we find that out, <laughs> that we're not alone? Yes. And it's just like this weight just drops to our shoulders and it goes, wow, it's not me. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm calling it the success trap, because it's a trap that you think you're failing in, but you're not. It's just a stage of growth that you need to go through. Well, it, well if you want, right? Because you don't have to. Absolutely. And, that, and that's why I think that at a certain point for all of us, we just focus on creating a better business, which is better for the shareholders, more profit, better for the customers, better for the employees, better for suppliers. And... Only a few people can be the biggest in their category. But being better at what you do in your niche is achievable. Well, look, I mean, there are lots of restaurants in the UK. Yeah. Right? And there are lots of Indian restaurants in the UK. Yeah. There will be the best Indian restaurant near Nick. Right? And so, and so you know, you can, defi- you can define your niche as narrow as you want. But as then as you have the curiosity and the drive to be... Yeah best in your sandbox. And, and I think that niching is an important concept as well, because I think as organisations grow, they can get flabby in terms of they can add on extra services and extra things they do, because at the time it seemed like a good idea, uh-huh. but they forgot to stop doing them. And they kind of now become the default. Yeah, I think that this plateau phase that I'm advocating is where you start to reframe rethink and then refocus so reframing is looking at things through these different stakeholder lens Uh looking at your business as a customer would is this business a better business from a customer perspective than it was three years ago is it a better experience as an employee and just looking through those different lenses allows you as the leader to reframe where you're at once you've done that if you go through the rethink phase And think, okay, if we were starting this business tomorrow, what would it look like? What would we do differently? And the last 18 months for a lot of businesses has forced that upon them. You know, for some business, the last 18 months had been just what they needed, Mm -hmm. which was a really sharp jolt saying, look, the way you've previously done things is kind of not relevant anymore. Get, Get with it, get relevant, get current. And it's actually been really good for some of my clients that have suddenly realized that there's a better way, a cheaper way, a more efficient way of doing things. Yeah. I think the rethink phase is where we challenge the status quo. And just because it got us here doesn't mean to say it should still be what we do going forward. And then the refocus phase is getting clear on what changes we need to make across the business. So where do we need to hire better people? Where do we need to improve our processes and our systems? And that's the work that needs to happen, I think, during this transformation phase. Hiring better people. Yeah. You know, so often part of this trap is that people think, because their their own experience is, you know, if we say goodbye to Fred and we go and hire Fred, well, then there's a gap, there's an empty chair and everybody's busy, yeah. and we're not really convinced that going to market to replace Fred will mean we get a better Fred. It just means we get Eric, and he knows less than Fred, yeah. and it's just hard. And so there's this whole, actually, somebody used the phrase, sevens kill your business, which is, you know, if you, if you rate your employees on a scale of one to 10, and you've got a seven, sometimes they're good enough that you think, oh, that's brilliant. They're sparks of genius, that makes you want to believe that there are a nine or a 10. I call it the okay syndrome. Fred's an okay financial controller. You know, he generally provides me what I need in generally the way that it kind of works okay for me, you know. And because I don't know any different, I accept that's the norm. I accept that's what a financial controller should do because he's my first financial controller. I've never had one. Yes. If they've got somebody in their business or they know, you know, I don't know, or thinking about teams they've been in or organizations they've been in and just say, you know, because people, I think, assume that great people are hard to find and they are, but like, why would anyone join your company? If you were looking for a job, what would be, what would you look for, right? You'd be saying, I want, I want to go and get this job and I want this to accelerate my career. Yeah. 
And then you look at most job ads written by small businesses. And it's like, does this job ad suggest to any candidate you might want to hire that this this will in some way accelerate their career? And it's like, not at all. Shopping list of accountabilities and things you want me to do, but it's just so uninspiring. Dull, right? It's like yeah. the only people who are going to apply who need are people who need a job. And that's not what you need at all. And that's the last person you should be hiring. I think, again, it falls on the leader, though, to actually become this inspirational leader because- mm. They've got to create the vision of what the business is going to be like in three to five years' time so that me, as an ambitious FC stroke FD, really wants to join this company because yeah. I want to be part of that. And I think they, leaders need to fall back in love with the business and in love with the business they want to create. And that's the strategy work which they need to be doing outside of the business is envisaging the better version of what they've currently got so they can go to market and they can go to their stakeholders, whether they need to raise money, whether they need to attract better talent. They can only do that if they've got a real clarity and confidence around what that next version of what we do looks like. And so how do you, I was going to say teach, but how do you inspire, what, what do you get clients to do so that they come up with this better version of their business? The first thing, as I say, is working with them on their mindset. So what are their limiting beliefs? What's holding them back at the moment? And talking about the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns and just getting deep with them about what's missing for them. Because unless they're passionate, unless they've got clarity and confidence around the future, then it's not going to work. They've got to sell this transformation process across the company. So my first piece of work is one-to-one -one with the owners and leaders. We do the reframing, and then we get in the room with the leadership team and do some of the rethinking. And I think the rethinking phrase has got to be a group activity, trying to move to this model where we're including other people in what the future business looks like. So we go from reframing to rethinking, and then we work on the refocus, which is the six core components that I feel are needed to move from adolescence to maturity. Uh -huh. So the first one is inspirational leadership. I think of the 96% of the businesses you spoke about earlier, most of the leaders spend their day as a functional manager. They're just doing stuff. They're not leading, they're managing. They're, they're, they're administrating, they're doing stuff. And they need to get back to be an inspirational leader, writing visions, empowering people, inspiring people, getting good at that. The second one then is strategy clarification. This is where we get refocused on what we're actually trying to achieve right now. Where are we profitable? What's our most profitable services and products? Where can we really niche down? Where do we need to put more time and resource? But standing back and really be analytical about the strategy. We did did some work with a client recently and I just said, look, I bet not all your customers are as profitable as each other. And they went, Oh, we've never thought we've never we've never thought about that. We just in their minds they had all customers are great, win lots of customers, some of them will become big ones. Yeah. And then they realize that actually they've got this massive long tail now of customers who, who are costing them money. And the other, the other thing that I find a lot, I don't know whether you find this, is they've got a lot of existing customers that aren't buying all of their products and services because they don't yeah. know what else they sell. Yes. They haven't pitched the whole deck to the existing customers. So they spend this money on sales piece and marketing campaigns to find new customers where they've got the field of diamonds right in front of them that they're not just not mining. Mm -hmm. And and that's the strategy clarification is, what are we doing with the existing customers? How are we making B-level customers, A-level customers? Yep. And that strategy piece is really important. So once we've done that, we look at stakeholder reciprocation. So this is where we're trying to create two-way relationships with our stakeholders. So whether that's employees, customers, shareholders, suppliers, uh -huh. but we're spending the time to look at the business from this other perspective and enter partnerships rather than transactional relationships. So what would that might look like with employees, for example? Well, with employees, it would be bonus systems or incentive systems where if we win, everybody wins. Okay. 
it's money put back into training pots and developing the employees so that the profits that are being made by the work of the employees, they're seeing some of that. It comes back to that sort of career acceleration. It does. How does you spending your time in this business make, you know, impact you in a positive way, not just pay you, pay you for doing some work? And what would you like to be developed in, Dominic? What was your kind of skill set you want to learn this year? How do we kind of facilitate that? So really creating kind of owner mentality in the employees. And that is difficult because it's a challenge because sometimes they've got to share more information they're comfortable with. Yes. They talk about profit with their employees, which for some owners and leaders is a no-go area. Yes. They don't need to know that. I interviewed Jack Stack, who wrote a book called Great Game of Business. He doesn't think you can get employees to behave like owners unless they understand the mechanics of the business and how the business makes money and how the money flows through the business. And he said, you know, he remembers doing a session in the factory and then one day one of the cleaners is diluting the floor cleaner. And he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm making a contribution to gross profit, Jack. And it's like, he said, he, you know, he got it. But with one of our clients, there was, there was a bit of research, I think, that said employees believe that businesses make 30% net profit, right? So at the moment, your employees think you're making a load of money and you're living the high life off, off their backs. We did an exercise with a, or a client did an exercise recently where they got a pile of money. So yeah, as the team came back together from COVID, they put the money on the table and they yeah. said, okay, here's all the things that we have to do. Like, so here's, here's a hundred pounds that's come into the business for a piece of work. Where do you think it goes? And and to take the whole team through this process of of taking this hundred pounds to then see, you know, what was left at the end, that and and again, one of the things we often say is it's not profit, it's a surplus. And so then you it's creating a surplus so you can do something with it. Because I can't send you on a training course or I can't give you a pay rise unless we have a surplus. And I, and I think that level of transparency and vulnerability is brilliant because it allows other people to be part of the solution. You know, otherwise the profits are down to the business leaders only in the eye yeah. of everybody. And that's what we want to move away from. So the stakeholder reciprocation and going on to number four, which actually talks about what you just mentioned, which is numerical extrapolation. So getting the key numbers out of the business. Yeah. Explaining those key numbers to everybody. You know this from, you know, your work in the digital space, that those key metrics on a dashboard visible for everybody yeah. is such a powerful motivator, <laughs> isn't it? You don't have to you don't have to manage people. They're managed by the dashboard. You know, I think back to running one of the sales teams at Rackspace and and you know we weren't getting where we wanted to be. So we looked at the numbers and the numbers, you know, an eight hour day for a telephone based sales organization and people were spending an hour and a half a day on the phone. Don't ask me why we got into that position. But anyway, we were there and we realized what it was. Yeah. So we sat the team down and we said, look, what do you think the minimum standard is? They talked to Monkey and they came back and said, look, you know, it's an eight hour day. Look, if we spend th- less than three hours on the phone, frankly, you should get rid of us. Now it's their goal, not my goal. And we just shared the data in real time with people. And, you know, they hit their numbers and, you know, went on to surpass them. But like, you know, you wouldn't play football and not know the score. You know, you get two small kids, you get two small kids in the park and they've got, all they've got is a couple of jumpers and a, and a football and they know the score. Oh, any game I play with my grandchildren, they know the score. I can't get by them with the score. The kids know the score from day one and they're kind of like, yeah, it's really important. I think it goes back to the owners and leaders understanding the numbers in the first place, because I think some of the lack of transparency is they don't know the numbers well enough themselves Uh to put them out there. So if we can get the numbers in a form which is understandable, data in businesses these days is so omnipresent. There's just so many numbers, isn't there? Yeah. You've got all your marketing numbers, you've got your operations numbers, you've got your finance numbers, but we've got to extrapolate out the key metrics do you have a sort of small subset of key metrics you normally use with clients or? Yeah, we've got across these six kind of components, I recommend three in each component so we can measure the key things. So we're not overloading, but we're just trying to pull out for each business what that key metric is. So if it's a service-based business, it might be the retention rate. You know, the retention rate might be the exist, you know, the critical one. If it's a retail business, it might be the spend per head. 
But trying to just for each business pull out a relevant scorecards and just find what those key metrics are that they can easily explain to others and that they can get then the buying around those numbers because they are the universal numbers. It's funny, isn't it? Because often that's not there. People, it's not, you know, it's opaque. And so they've got a business plan. They're like, I'd like to go from X to Y. And they've got an Excel spreadsheet. But that sort of, what are those key numbers is the business model. Yeah. And they haven't, they haven't defined the business model. And therefore, because you haven't defined it, you can't share it. And then people don't know that they're doing the wrong things. And, and you can't blame them because they haven't been told what the right thing looks like. Totally. Totally. And, and that number kind of exercise where we kind of delve into the business and really understand the numbers is the fourth component. And then moving on from that, it's about reputational maximization. And this is what I touched on earlier, that most existing businesses have got a good reputation if they're still in business or they've got a good enough reputation. Yes. But how do they enhance that? How do they get on the MPS scores, the nines and tens? Yeah. It's really going to start to accelerate the business with the right customers at very little extra cost. Yeah. Because without those nines and tens, without those people proactively saying, you know, you need to talk to Dominic, you need to talk to Dom, he's great. You know, you've got to spend money on marketing and finding potential customers. But if you've got those brand ambassadors already in your ecosystem that do the work for you, then that's so much more efficient, it's more effective, and it delivers greater profit. So what's not to love about referrals, retention, and recommendations? Yeah, and just as the leader, spending time on that rather than whatever admin it is that you hate doing. Yeah, just having that call with a customer you haven't spoken to in a while and just saying, how's it been the last 18 months? What's happening in your world? Do you want to grab a coffee? Should we chat? You know, and going into those relationships, it goes back to stakeholder reciprocation, making those key customers feel like key customers. I spoke, I spoke to somebody recently and I said, how's it going? He said, well, you know, he said, we spoke and we said, Maybe we should call our customers. You think? He said, he said, he said, he said, you've got to be careful what you wish for. We're busier than ever. Like we're hanging on by our fingernails. We're so busy. It's like, okay. Yeah. And it's that ability and that confidence to say, okay, well, maybe some of these customers aren't the ones we need, but let's build the reputation around the customers that we want to attract. And then finally, the final component we look at is the operational optimization. So this is making sure the hub of the business is really efficient. As businesses grow, we add bits of software, we add processes and systems, but they don't generally work together. They just kind of sit alongside each other. We've got four pieces of customer data about on the CRM system, we've got it on the sales system, we've got it on the account system, but we haven't got one central thing that talks to everything. So there's an investment in the center of the business around optimizing the operational side. And this can come back to as simple as writing an operational manual. You know, how many businesses have spent the time to write down and record how we do things here so that when a new person comes in, they can hand them a manual and say, guess what? We're going to make it easy for you. We're going to give you the manual of how you do everything. And then you can just ask me questions if you're unsure. It's really interesting. One of our clients is a company that does sort of back office admin outsourcing. Mm -hmm. They've got several hundred people based in the Philippines. And their clients are all small businesses like the ones we're talking about. And so one of their parts of their process is discovery because they know that the reason that the small business can't outsource anything or have member of staff overseas is because they have no process. So the first thing they do is they say, what is the task? They document the process. They get that signed off. Then they train somebody on the process. And then they say, now test them. Okay, now they're live. And, you know, they've got a 100% success rate. But I think the value is not that they've got teams in the Philippines who are amazing, but it's actually that discovery process. That's the bit that stops people hiring other people offshore. or. Yeah. And it also stops the leader stepping back because if they've written the operational manual or they've signed off on the operational manual, they can step back because they, as long as the business is run via the manual, 
I mean, that's why franchise businesses are so successful. It's because we could both buy the same franchise tomorrow, know nothing about the industry, but there's a manual to work to. Yeah, and our burgers, our burgers and fries will be perfect every time. They'll be exactly the same because we can create them via the manual. And that's no accident. You know, one of my gurus is Michael Gerber in Emith because he understood way back in the 80s that that was the key to scaling a business, was to have this operational hub, which was non-negotiable. It could be iterated, but until the iteration was approved, this is the way we do things here. And that kind of methodology is what I'm trying to bring into my book and my work is having a structure to work to. Because I think that as businesses grow, they do need to sometimes get more structured. I think as a new business, we're very agile, we're very flexible. We try and work in different ways and we respond to the situation. Well, right at the beginning when you're a startup, you're trying to find that minimum viable product you know like you had this idea about the business but then you started selling and it wasn't quite what you thought and you know sort of hustling but we're like a teenager aren't we we're trying different things on we're trying different looks we're trying different genre of music we're trying to find where we where we fit yeah but then it's about once you found that niche really kind of focusing on that and, and not being attracted by the shiny objects outside, but just saying, we can actually do this really well in this business. EOS or traction, you know, Gino Wickman's book, you know, that, that sort of visionary integrator, you know, that the visionary is that squirrel, shiny object, yep. new idea. And, and you need one of those, don't you? You need one of those on the team, but you only need one of them. Yes. And you need to build a system where they get to play to their strengths. Yeah. And you want that innovative idea to come into the business. You want that random idea, but it's got to be then filtered through the other business processes to make sure it's actually good strategy. Yes. But, and, and, and I think that's where putting a team in place and allowing the decision-making to sit with the team and the leader being part of the team, but not being able to override the team all the time, maybe, you know. If everyone else thinks this is a good idea and you don't, what do you do? Well, I think you have to work out how you could prove in a non-destructive way what the answer is, right? I think I think we might not know the answer. Yeah. So many things the answer is actually we don't know. There's a company called Optimizely and and digital optimization software for websites. And I heard the guy speak at a conference a few years ago and he was working at Google and he met Obama came to Google and he decided that Obama was so amazing. He was going to join Obama's program as head of digital for his presidential campaign. And they wrote, they built Optimizely to work out how to fundraise for Obama. And so this guy's talk, he sort of says, okay, well, look, here's several pictures of Obama and his family. Which one should we use on the, uh, on the email? Okay, brilliant. Um, there's some music to go with it. Which soundtrack should we use? This is the process of asking for a donation. And, and he, you know, there's thousands of people in the audience and everyone's putting their hand up and putting their hand down. He goes, okay, you're all wrong. Like every single one of you, whatever you thought was the right answer, it wasn't the right answer. And even if you got one or two of them right, you got three or four of them wrong. The ad ends up being completely counterintuitive. And, and I think that's, that's true so often in businesses is that the leader might be right or wrong. The team might be right or wrong. But how do you then go and say, well, what if we go and test? What, what would we have to do in the next 90 days so that we'd know what the right answer was? And then we do more of that. And, and that's the agile mentality, the kind of digital mentality, isn't it? Which I think all business should adopt. You know, having things as beta tests is okay. Customers are okay with a beta test version of something if you tell it's a beta test. And sometimes it actually builds the relationship, doesn't it? Because I feel trusted as a customer that you want my opinion on the beta test. Yes. We had a client who was doing some strategy work. Like, this is sort of back last uh, over last December. And he said, okay, so we're going to launch this new product and our route to market is through one of our vendors and their account management team. And then we're going to hire salespeople and da, da, da. And he had this plan. And then January comes back and he says, we failed. I said, how have you failed? He said, well, because actually I thought the account manager that I knew at Cisco, there was 10 of them. He said, turns out 
the guy I know is my guy and the rest of them can't help me at all. And so he said, I've, I've, I've failed. I said, you haven't failed. What you've done is you've learned something. And th- thankfully, we've learned that before we've like launched a product and hired 10 salespeople without actually a route to market. And I think it's one of the budgets which is missing from most budgets is that kind of you know, trial project. Yeah. How much can we afford this year? You talked about, you know, when you create surplus each year, what do you do with that surplus? Well, I think a certain percentage of that surplus should be allocated next year for test products. Yes. Let someone play with this in a kind of structured way, but let's spend a little bit of money, give it a little bit of time and just see if we can get enough traction. And I think that mentality, if you can bring that in continually, that's the innovative organization we're ideally looking to create, isn't it? It is. It is. Nick, what what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I think what I wish I'd known earlier is the fact that working on the future vision of the business is a continual job that needs time allocated every week. So I'm a really big believer that people should spend a day a week on strategizing, on creative thinking to get to where they want to be in the future. Without that time, then they're robbing themselves of a better future. Yeah, I think it's well, it's like getting fit, isn't it? You know, you could you could say, well, I'm going I'm going to spend a week a year getting fit. Yeah. Or I'm going to do a bit every week. And you just you just know the guy who tries to do, well, if people go skiing or, you know, I'm going to go hiking. I've not done any training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you pull a muscle in the first day. Right. You didn't like it, really? Yeah. 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 So I think that it's a continual kind of learning is really important. Yeah. Making time and then and then doing it. Yeah. And, and that, as you said before, you know, spending time with people that are better than you currently maybe or think differently you know if we want to get better at playing tennis we need to play against a better player yeah because it improves our reaction time we un- improves our fitness if we just knock against the person we can always beat i owned a boat with a couple of mates for 10 years racing boat and when we fir- when we first bought it we we were last every single time we raced i mean Every single, unless somebody sank, like we, 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 we were, we were last again. And then we said, you know what? We don't run our companies this way. This is ridiculous. We need some better people and we need to know what good looks like. So I, I got myself a ride on the best boat in the fleet. So I did a season with them so I could see what good looked like. And then we hired better people. We got better, better. We got every single sailor on the boat was better than the three owners. And then we started winning stuff and it's just, it's that simple, isn't it? It's just better people. And, and yeah. it's so easy now, isn't it, to actually, you know, all the podcast, all the material out there, we can absorb as a leader what others are doing that are farther ahead of the journey than we are. Yeah. We don't think it's profitable time. You know, spending an hour just listening to a podcast, is that a good use of our time? And and it's just so important that becomes a default habit rather than an occasional habit, because that's where we're going to learn. Yes, totally. Um. So Nick, better before bigger. Yeah. Great book. Thank you. And it comes with a workbook. So I was just thinking, you uh, you know, you've you've got a book and a workbook. So some of the stuff that we've been chatting about this morning. Yeah. You know, the workbook. You read the book, get the workbook. It just allows you to then sit down and reflect on many of these things that we've spoken about. I've got a better reaction to the workbook in some respects than the book itself, which is really interesting. And I've got a number of people that have gone away with the workbook for a strategy session on their own and just worked through the questions asked. Fab. And and it's been really insightful that that has actually created more interest in some respects. Available where all good books are sold? Available where all good books are sold and also on my own website, which is www.nickcramp.com. And then you can have a signed copy. (laughs) Fantastic. So that you can turn up in 30 years' time on Antiques Roadshow with uh, your signed copy. (laughs) What other books do you think people should be thinking if they make it to Spain on their sun lounger or they're inside in Devon hiding from the rain? (laughs) 
I think that um, one of my all-time favourites is Maverick by Richard Semler. Oh, yeah. Which is donkey's years old, but he empowered his team from day one in a factory in South America and just some really good lessons about true authenticity and true empowerment and decision-making coming from the employees. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I heard him interviewed by Tim Ferriss. Okay. And uh, I think Tim chats to him for about an hour. And so he's the son of, so his dad, it was his dad's business. It was. And his dad goes on holiday and leaves him in charge. Mm. And he said, this business needs to change. And he realized there were some people who weren't going to change. So he, he let them go. It was like night of the long knives, right? Yeah. We're going to change. But it is a fantastic story about empowering employees. And He was the one that got the employees to actually set their own pay. Yeah. He said, right, this is the business accounts. This is, you know, what we're earning. This is where all the money goes. So what do you think you should get paid out of this? And what should he get paid? And he just, you know, it's an amazing transformation to actually leave a lot of the decision-making to the people working the business. Yeah. And then and I, I was always amazed by where some of them became sort of set up their own business and became suppliers back. And so the size of the business actually reduced because some of the people on the out were on the outside supplying yeah. in. But he just let it kind of organically create, if you like, which was amazing. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's a sensational book. It's as you say, it's it's not it's not a new book by any means, but it's one of the I think one of the first business books I yeah. I read or remember reading, and it had a yeah. profound impact on me. What what else you got on your shelf? Um, I like Matthew Syed and uh-huh. Rebel Ideas. I think yeah. he's a really intellectual thinker and writer, and he just comes from kind of left field ideas on things. And he talks about diversity, talks about um, echo chambers, group speak, group thinking. And I think those are things that are holding people back. So I think he's got some really great um, analogies and some really great stories to help people become more rebellious as leaders. And I think that's a really good message. It's interesting, isn't it? The That echo chamber thing, go looking for, you know, are you the most profitable business like yours if not who is have you got the highest customer retention of a business like yours if not who does who's growing faster than you it's it's that it's well it's that it's that curiosity isn't it yeah. looking for looking for what great looks like yeah what are my key numbers and looking for what great looks like and, and lots of things around diversity in terms of diversity of age diversity of background diversity you know so when you've got a meeting if you're sitting in a meeting and everyone looks like you how are you going to come up with anything different because you're all of the same age and the same experience, the chances are you're going to have similar ideas and similar views. So that diversity across all areas of the business, he just articulates really well about, and I think that's a really good one to take on board. Yeah. What else? Got, we've got a third from you. A third would be anything by Seth Godin. I, I find Seth Godin so insightful and he just nails it in terms of, Generally, from a marketing perspective, and it goes back to the first one I read of his, which was Purple Cow. Yeah. And that idea to create something which really is differentiated from the herd and create something which is remarkable. I think that that is what we should be doing, both when we start in business, but more importantly, when we get to adolescence, we need to go again on creating the second version which is still remarkable and even more remarkable. Yeah. Well, or, or when we were chatting earlier about hiring, yeah, don't write dull job ads like everybody else. You know, try to show how coming to work here might have a positive impact on your future. Absolutely. Yeah, just find those kind of remarkable people because remarkable businesses have remarkable people inside them. It's got to work that yes. way. You can't have remarkable business unless it's fueled by people of that thinking well, I, I often think that the business owner is thinking that they want to run something like a professional sports team yeah and if you looked at like alex ferguson wins the premier league he doesn't say to himself that wayne rooney's overpaid what i need to do is hire some people who aren't as good as wayne on less money 
And that's my strategy for success. That's how I'll retain retain the championship next season. They're like, I need some people better, better and you know, in different places. And 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 he's not on the field. He's not playing. He's not on the field and he's got that detachment so he can make those decisions. And what he was so great at was that there was a combination of homegrown talent. Yes. As you say, was the bedrock of it. And then there was the Cantonars, the Van Nistelrooy's, the expensive big signings. Yeah. But he chose really wisely because he knew that they would raise the level of everybody else. Yep. Because he chose them on their values. He chose them that they were going to be that kind of person that was going to give back as much as they were getting paid. Yeah. And and I think that's the key, isn't it? It's the integration between the really big hires, but having that bedrock of really good retained value-centered loyal employees. Yeah. Nick, I was, I'm left thinking that the things that you talk about, I know your target audience is the entrepreneur adolescence, but, but I think many of the things that you've talked about, actually, if you were in a larger business and you've stepped up to run a team, yeah, that you know the the tools and the reflection yes. are are very are very very similar. I I, th- I think they work in three ways. I think there's the core market with the adolescent one, as as you say. I think they work in corporates because within corporates you've got these kind of you know independent decision making units, or you've got divisions within a corporate. And I think that division you can create like a company, yeah, and you can create your own values and your ideals and the way you work on that side. But I also think there's astute startups that if they get this right from day one, then they avoid the success trap altogether. Yeah. You know, because from day one, they're designing a business with growth in mind that they're not at the center of. Yeah. And I think serial entrepreneurs, when you come to start your second or third business, you probably tend to do that because you've learned the hard way. And that's what I'm hoping people kind of get from the book as well is that you don't have to go through the learning curve because others have gone through that. So why don't you skip some of that learning and go on to page two rather than have to work through the whole manual and learn from others further down the line? Yeah, I see that with some of our clients where they're sort of well-funded startups and they've got an executive team at the table on day one. And it makes such a difference, doesn't it? It does. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you this morning. And yourself, sir, it's been really good. Thanks very much for coming on. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.